Welcome to Deep Roots, a project of Cortez Community Radio. Deep Roots is an examination of contemporary environmental issues and traditional knowledge and culture. In this edition, producer Roy Hales explores the history of wild salmon on the BC coast and the state of the fishery and salmon habitat today. Fishing was once a cornerstone of British Columbia's economy, but we've been hearing stories of diminished runs and out-of-work fishermen for years. Roy Hales lives on Cortez Island, where the fishing industry seems to be mostly spoken about in the past tense. So, he set out to find out where have all the salmon gone. First, I wanted to find out what the salmon runs mean to the people on Cortez Island. So I asked Ken Hanus of the Takimuk about the traditions of the Klihus First Nation. He begins with a story. Raven and a friend were invited to dinner at the village of the fish. Two children, a boy and a girl, were sent into the water. And shortly after, Raven was given his salmon dinner. Raven ate his meal, but instead of putting all the bones on his plate, he kept a small bone from the salmon's head in his mouth. The bones were gathered up and thrown back into the water, where they changed it back into the two little children. The boy was okay, but the little girl couldn't open her eyes. The parents knew that a bone had not been put on the table and began to look for it. They searched all over. Suddenly, Raven pulled the bone out of his mouth and remarked, Maybe this is the one. They told the little girl to go back into the water and then threw the missing bone in after her. When she came out, she was whole again. And that's why you must always throw the salmon bones back into the ocean. Salmon has been our lifeblood. As um, we've used it in fish stews, it's uh, been like jerky. You can take it with you. You dry it in the smokehouse and uh, bring it with you when you go hunting, when you go fishing. And when the salmon got scarce, oftentimes people would depend on other resources, such as shellfish or. Um, animals, deer, bear, and beaver, as well as uh, a lot of the vegetation, berries, roots. But the salmon seem to be highest on the uh, food chain for our people. Well, without the salmon, there would be a lot of famine, although there are uh, other foods that we've depended on, such as uh, deer and and the uh, shellfish, but salmon would come around every year and 
there was this there was a special spiritual connection to the salmon because they would come back and uh, provide us with light. listen to Ken Hanus singing the Salish National Anthem with the permission of Chief Leonard George. One of the old-timers told me there used to be as many as 30 canoes fishing for chum in Squirrel Cove. The Cortez Museum has lists of commercial fishermen who used to be based here. I counted 41 names working on at least 30 boats during the 1970s. Now there were two boats. So I set off to speak with Cortez Island Museum curator Lynn Jordan and her husband Joe, a former fisherman. Fishing was one of the things people could do right from the very early settlement days. Fishing and hunting were one of the, or two of the reasons that people came here. The others were logging and farming. And fishing was very important to families, particularly in the uh, 20s and 30s, for food, and people canned it as well as went out daily. Lynn goes on to explain how in the early days, fishermen sold their catch to mobile wholesale vessels called scowls. Cortez in the uh, early days had two fish scows right on Cortez, one at Whaletown and the other at Cortez Bay, but there was also a fish scow towards Twin Islands, and I believe there was one around Hernando where fishermen could go out mostly in rowboats in the early days, and handline fishing. And then at the end of the day, they'd go to one of the fish scows and sell their fish and get money in the hand right then. So it was um, a way to make a bit of money besides taking home dinner. People as young as 12 went out deckhanding. And reading the stories, the Ballantine family who lived in uh, Gorge Harbor and had a resort, Bill Ballantine used to take kids, a group of kids, out fishing for two or three days at a time to um, teach them what fishing was like. There were days when all the docks on Cortez Island had numerous boats rafted out, um, tied alongside each other. The early boats didn't have any electronics like we have today. They didn't have a sounder, sometimes not even a compass, and certainly no phone. So when they were out, they sometimes had radio contact and there were stories of fishermen not going too far from Cortez in the early days because their boats were so small, they didn't have the capacity to store their fish. So every day they had to deliver their fish to a scow. Um, And then as things progressed, boats got a little bigger, canneries supplied ice for them, and so they were able to fish for a few days and go a little further and then packers would pick up their fish instead of having to return to deliver their fish all the time. And a lot of the fishermen from Cortez would go north, beyond the north part of Vancouver Island, up to Smiths and Rivers Inlets. And I know my husband Joe, he fished from April till November back in the 70s, 60s and 70s. And Fishermen fished all week long and then took weekends off, but they stayed in the area and partied. Uh, (laughs) All the camaraderie that went on, they'd either raft up or they had a wharf that they could, or a float they could tie up to, and um, 
Some people would supply fish, others would throw a few crab traps out, dig a few clams, and they'd sit and have a feast every night on the dock. Lynn's husband, Joe Jordan, explained why there weren't very many fishermen left on Cortez Island. Years and years ago, there was a lot of fellows in their 70s, 80s, what fished the Fraser River and places, and prices went up on the, on the licenses, and some of these old fishermen only went out and made a few sets a year and fed, fed a can of fish and gave them some neighbors. Licenses were only a dollar, so for a license for a boat. So they could go out and do it. Then when they had to stop pushing a license, no more aid licenses out, now these boats, were worth 50, 60, up to $100,000, depends on the length of the boat. Well, they sold out. Well, the new fishermen coming in, $75,000, $80,000 just for the piece of paper for letting them to fish. Now the poor fisherman that had to pay 75000 or so for a license has to go out and fish like mad to pay for the license even. It made a, a, a boat that was only worth next to four or five, six hundred dollars so made it worth seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000. So it was ridiculous. And then sometimes they would, if you had a, a license, a commercial license on your boat, it would only cost a dollar. A lot of yachts would go out and they'd put a dollar license on it and they could tie their boat up at the fisherman's dock for half the price. So a lot of boats would never caught a fish ever become worth the license on They could sell the license off the boat and keep the boat. And they were, here's $75,000 again for nothing. So then they, that made a boat, a yacht, into a commercial boat. If the government would have just left it alone and stopped this stupid license, this is limiting of the licenses, the fishermen would probably be better off. My opinion only is that fisheries have screwed up the fishing on this coast considerably. And you can't make money fishing anymore. Would you have any opinion on whether there are as many fish as there used to be back a few decades ago? No, there doesn't seem to be. So I decided to interview a fisherman from the north. Ray Kendall is a former marine biologist who became a commercial fisherman in 1979. He fished the Taku River on the Alaska-British Columbia border for more than three decades and is a former panel member of the Pacific Salmon Commission. Taku is um, a remote far north body of water, uh, very little um, development. There's been one mine on it. It started in the 30s, I think it shut down in the 50s. Compare that to what's going on in the, the Fraser drainage where it's uh, huge. There's uh, Kitimat and power generation, there's uh, farming, there's ranching, there's huge development like uh, in the city. The Fraser River Delta where all the fish pass through in both directions are um, basically an industrial area. Coho spawn usually within 100 kilometers of, of the seawater and if you look at the Fraser then that's pretty much the whole area of development up to Hope so a lot of the um, habitat for coho has been eliminated. Sockeye travel a little farther, but they're also susceptible to uh, heat stress and uh, warm water. They get fungal diseases. They get uh, premature die-off before they even get to the spawning ground. So Chinook, I don't know that much about the Chinook runs in, in the freezer. 
but I don't suspect they're particularly strong either. I'm told, for example, on Cortez, that a lot of our uh, chum salmon were wiped out because uh, of the culvert at Basil Creek. Most of the culverts in the early days weren't put in to allow for salmon passage. Nowadays, you know, that has to be taken into consideration. You are listening to Deep Roots on CKTZ Cortez Community Radio, an examination of environment and traditional knowledge and culture. One of the Cortez Island streamkeepers was able to give me more of a local take on the situation. In a previous interview, Cease Robinson told me that the chum runs on Hanson's Creek had dropped from hundreds to 30 on a good year. This was one of the things that inspired me to research the decline of the salmon runs. Ironically, I returned during the biggest chum run in recent history. Why is anybody's guess? I mean, uh, it would seem to indicate higher than average survival at sea, I suppose. I don't know if that might have something to do with the El Nino that we have had going for the last couple of years. Better feed patterns for them or something. Basilwood, what we've seen in the past would have been one to 200 fish, maybe maybe 300 fish on would have been a good year. And I don't have the total yet. We're still in the process of, of doing the count, but we're certainly up over 500, I guess, anyway, this year. And, uh, and Hanson Creek is that flows into the gorge is probably a more extreme example, really. I mean, we've seen years with three or four fish in there, a good year, 30 fish. And again, I don't have the totals yet, but it looks like a couple hundred for sure, which is just a fantastic number. How long has it been since you've had a decent run? I think the last time that there was anything even approaching this in, in Basil Creek was six, seven years back, I, I'm not certain, but something like that. We weren't doing formal counts at that point. But, you know, the other thing that, that's interesting with Chum is that they're wanderers. They're, they're quite willing to go up a stream that is not their natal stream. And um, I grew up with the stories that every fish goes back to the same pond that was hatched in and the same pool and whatnot. I think that was a vastly oversimplified um, way of looking at things. So if the numbers are over the top, it just seems like they'll take it upon themselves to go into some place that maybe hasn't seen a fish in years, which is a hugely positive mechanism for, for sustaining themselves, right? I mean, even if, it, if a run gets wiped out in a given stream, there's, there's the realistic hope that some vagabonds in the future will wander in there and start it up again. What are some of the challenges towards um, chum runs? In my opinion, the big challenge is climate change. Ray Kendall agrees. Definitely a problem. The pre-spawn mortality on the Fraser River in some years is extremely high, and that's a big issue to try to lower the temperature of of water in time to save the, the salmon. The farther north you go, of course, the the cooler the waters are, and that's probably one of the reasons that our runs are doing reasonably well. When I say climate change, I, I guess I'm thinking of associated issues like ocean acidification, which is certainly a real thing. And, uh, I mean, I, I see that directly hands-on in the oyster business. It's not a thing of the future. It's here now. 
And we don't really have much of an understanding of how that might affect things and what degree of tolerance the plankton has for that and obviously how that would affect uh, every, everything else. I want to get the Department of Fisheries and Oceans perspective. After three weeks of trying, I reached Jennifer Ninner, Regional Director of Salmon, on the phone. I don't think we could actually make any broad statements overall. So each of the stocks tends to experience some natural fluctuation from year to year. And then across the species as a whole, we don't see any particular clear patterns for the most part, although um, I would say there are some exceptions with, uh, for example, Fraser, Southern, Southern BC uh, Chinook and uh, Interior Fraser of Coho. If we look at sockeye, for example, Fraser River sockeye, yes, we, we had very low returns in 2016. However, we've also had two of the strongest years on record uh, within the past 10 years. So 2010 and 2014 were both exceptionally strong. Part of that is the four-year cycle that we expect to see with Fraser sockeye. And then there's some natural variability on top of that. And then there's a complexity of factors that will come into play that affect the returns in a given year. I was interviewing someone from the Taku River, a fisherman, biologist as well, where they don't have any problems with human infrastructure or salmon farms or saners. And he was telling me the returns are pretty steady there in contrast to the Fraser River. That area is also a lot further north. And one of the challenges that we have had further south is some warmer temperatures in the river during the time that fish would be migrating upstream to their spawning grounds. And it's different circumstances uh, in marine areas that the juveniles would be facing when they first go to sea. So again, I think it's pretty hard to identify any specific issue that may be having implications because there's so many different factors that come into play. Salmon have very complex life cycles, and uh, we need to be considering all the things that could be going on that affect them in both the freshwater phase as well as the marine phase of their life cycle. Here's Ray Kendall. There's no one problem that's affecting salmon. It's, uh, it's our whole culture. It's, it's the way we develop all our cities on uh, river mouths or deltas. Urban development, logging, farming, roads and culverts have all taken their toll on the salmon runs. Human activity is also responsible for the warming oceans, which may turn out to be the biggest threat of all. When I started out on this story, it seemed like we were on the verge of a mass extinction. A quarter of a million sockeye perished in Washington state last year after water temperatures in the lower Snake River rose over the lethal point. This summer, the Fraser River sockeye run was lower than it has been for 120 years. Department of Fisheries and Oceans, Jennifer Nenner. And I think it, it's going to depend on the, the geographic area. So some areas have more rainfall, have but fairly consistent groundwater inputs, and those groundwater inputs tend to provide cool water to streams. Other streams are going to be more vulnerable. And the species of sockeye that actually spend more time rearing in fresh water are the ones that will be most vulnerable. So, for example, coho and chinook will spend a fair bit of time rearing in freshwater streams and could be more vulnerable to warming conditions. And in terms of what can we do, things like managing water removals, making sure that people are conserving water as much as possible, 
can only help, and also protecting riparian vegetation, which provides shade to streams because having that direct sunlight hit a small, shallow stream where these fish tend to rear as juveniles can have a significant impact on their survival during that phase of the life cycle. So anything that people can do to protect riparian vegetation can be very helpful. And then in terms of how we manage in season when adults are returning, so for example, if you consider the Fraser main stem and the distance that fish need to migrate up that river, yes, temperatures can approach and reach levels that are of concern and could potentially affect Fraser sockeye or, or other species. We take that into consideration in managing any harvest and actually build in what we call a management adjustment for Fraser sockeye such that if we anticipate that there would be an impacts, we would manage to try and provide an additional number of fish to make it to the spawning grounds uh, to ensure that we do as much as possible to reach our escapement goal. I asked where have all the salmon gone? It appears that my question was premature. Despite everything we've done to harm them, the salmon keep coming back. A very different picture has emerged of all the province's independent fishermen, like the men and women who were once based on Cortez Island. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia, half a century ago regulations had let most boats fish nearly every day of the season. But by 1997, controls brought in by a strong fleet and weak fish stocks kept many of the boats tied up 10 or 11 months a year. A report from the David Suzuki Foundation notes that 71% of the people working in the province's commercial fishing industry lost their jobs. Department of Fisheries licensing practices diverted the fishes away from the populous small boat fleet and delivered the resource into the hands of a venture capitalist. This was a reference to the fact that by 1998, Jimmy Pattison had acquired 37% of the province's singing fleet. I asked Jennifer Ninner why the reductions in the fishing fleets. Our, our management approaches have changed with the objective of better managing effort uh, and supporting conservation of the stock. Back in the 50s, my dad was a commercial fisherman and I'd often go out with him and there seemed to be an air of joy and delight because there's always going to be a good fishing season. Since I moved back to Cortez and a number of years later after moving back I got the fisheries job so I was more connected directly to the habitat of the salmon and how the the runs were year after year monitoring and counting them and uh, now I see how important it is to what we're doing as Clahoos up in Toba with our bear tours, which the salmon are a very important food for the grizzly bears. Without the salmon, the grizzly bears wouldn't be around the streams and we wouldn't have the opportunity to bring guests in to film the grizzlies and the salmon. How are the salmon runs now compared to in the past? I don't really have any data like that, but I can tell you this year and in previous years, the sockeye salmon came back in the millions. And it was just unbelievable how many were returning about four or five years ago. And then this year, 2016, the uh, the chum salmon run has been just enormous. Millions and millions of fish out there. Some uh, some of my commercial fishermen friends were telling me about 
how every boat seemed to be filled to the gunnels, which is pretty impressive. And some of the local fishermen were smiling all the way to the bank. You could see how happy they were. So Sockeye had their turn several years ago. And from what I understand, it's cyclical. There seems to be a 20-year cycle where different populations uh, that depend on the salmon go up and down as do the salmon. So that some years the salmon population isn't as great. And at that point, um, one of my elders had mentioned the, the significance of harvesting salmon once they've spawned. So, and that was their way of preserving and prolonging the salmon run. If they knew the salmon were going to be in short supply that year, they would wait until they spawned. And normally they would harvest enough to feed their little community. Because back in those days we had, in the 30s and 20s and, and pre-contact, there was people living all throughout Clahoose territory in different parts or that, at the different spawning creeks where that little family gathering would benefit uh, from that run. An old-timer was telling me back in the 60s, the salmon at Basil Creek were practically swimming over top of each other to get upstream so that they could spawn. After exploring where salmon have gone, I find that despite human impact, the species is resilient and mysterious. Thanks to writer-producer Roy Hales for this edition of Deep Roots. Technical help from Rob Selmanovic and Sean Cowles. Deep Roots senior producer is Greg Osoba. Cortez Community Radio is grateful to the Community Radio Fund of Canada, the Victoria Foundation and other donors, and the Clahoose First Nation for their support. More information about the series can be found at cortezradio.ca.